I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5 this morning. Galatians 5. We are studying together through the gospel, through the book of Galatians, into chapter 5 now. I want you to think back to Mount Sinai. This is the place where God gave to us the law through Moses. And when Moses went up into that mountain, you remember what it was like. I tell you, if you had been there that day, you would never forget it. Because on that mountain were thunderings and lightnings and a tempest and an earthquake, and everyone shook in their boots. In fact, Moses said, I tremble with fear. The mountain was full of thunderings and threats, a string of curses for anyone who did not obey God's just and holy demands. For He is a holy God. John Bunyan, in his famous allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, has his main character, Pilgrim, Christian, working uh, toward the celestial city, but he gets off track by the counsel of a worldly wise man to try to get rid of his burden of sin and guilt in the home of Mr. Legality. And Bunyan says, as he approached the hill on which this house stood, it seemed to be steeper than he first thought. It arose so high that it that the sight of it hung over him. It raised fear in him to venture further, for he was afraid the hill would fall on his head. He stood there trying to figure out what to do, and his burden seemed heavier than ever, much heavier than when he had first set out from his home. Flashes of fire erupted from the side of the hill. The sight filled Christian with dread that he should be burnt. Sweat beaded across his brow as he trembled with fear. And every one of us, friends, stands under the righteous condemnation of God's holy law because of our sin, our rebellion against God. We are rightly condemned under the law. But the gospel, the gospel is a message of Deliverance. It's a message of salvation, a message of freedom. Freedom from the curse of the law. Freedom from the curse of law breaking. The curse is off of us because Christ took it upon Himself. Amen? Our Lord and Savior bore the curse in His own body on the tree. All of the just and righteous wrath of God against your law breaking against my rebellion, all of it taken in Himself. And not only did He bear the curse of the law, but He earned the blessings of the law. All of those blessings that come for perfect obedience, He offered that perfect obedience to His Father in heaven, doing God's will from beginning to end, from His heart, with joy and trust. Oh, what a Savior we have. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you are 
If you are a believer in Jesus, you are delivered from your sin, delivered from the curse of the law, and brought into the blessings of the gospel. What a joy to hear this message preached and expounded in this book of Galatians. I want to ask you before we go any further whether the gospel has become real for you. I wonder if you've ever stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and heard the threatenings of God over your sins. I wonder if you've ever seen yourself as a guilty sinner before a holy and righteous God, your Creator. I wonder if that has ever made you run to the hill of Calvary and looked upon the cross and seen Christ bearing your guilt for yourself and felt that burden of sin roll off your back and found yourself light and free Oh, I pray that the Gospel may come home to you, to every one of you. The Gospel is a message of freedom. But there are always abusers of the Gospel of grace. People who would turn freedom into license. Who would turn liberty into licentiousness who would use the freedom from the condemnation of God as an excuse to go on in sin. People who would say, well, it doesn't matter how we live because we are forgiven and we're free from any condemnation. We just read it, right? No condemnation. And so I'll live how I want. And to those people, to that sinful human inclination to go that direction in our minds, even if not in our words, that to that sinful inclination, Paul says in verse 13 of chapter 5, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And flesh, mentioned a couple of weeks ago, your flesh is your natural self, who you are apart from grace. Your human nature as a descendant of Adam and Eve. If you're a Christian, that's the old you. That's the old you because you've been born again. You're now in the realm of the Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Not in the flesh, as it were, but now in the Spirit. And the Spirit does two things. He unites us to Christ as believers so that Christ's righteousness, His perfection is actually ours. It's given to us as a free gift. A gift of God's pure kindness given to us, credited to us as if it were ours, Christ's own righteousness. That comes by by the Holy Spirit who unites us to, to Jesus in heaven the perfect Jesus in heaven. But He also unites Christ to us here on the earth such that He brings us into union with Christ, that Christ is in us and is being formed in us. Christ is living out His life through us. He's speaking His words. He's doing His actions. He is performing His will through us by the control of His Spirit indwelling us. So the the blessed Holy Spirit both unites us to Christ 
in his imputed righteousness and causes us, on the other hand, to experience more and more his, the, his actual righteousness being lived out in our lives. The Holy Spirit is a great theme in this section of Galatians. Paul talks about the Spirit eight times in the ten verses that we're going to read, verses 16 through 20. Let's go ahead and take a look at those. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. What a privilege it is to call God our Father. Amen? He is such a wise Father, providing Father. Think of the best earthly father you can get and then multiply it times infinity. He is a father in heaven. And what a blessing it is to have Jesus Christ, our elder brother, our redeemer, the one who laid down his life for us, our intercessor before a holy God. But friends, what a joy it is also to have Within us, God the Holy Spirit, the indwelling God. Not only the providing God and the redeeming God, but the indwelling God. To have God in us, God the Comforter, God our Companion, God our Guide, God our Power, And in this passage, we are told many things um, about our relationship to the Holy Spirit and about the nature of the Spirit and His work and His ministry. Take a look. Just let's scan the text first, all right? Look at verse 16. We are commanded towards the Spirit to walk in the Spirit. And in verse 17... He says that there are desires of the Spirit. In verse 18, we are admonished to be led by the Spirit. 
in verse 22, we're informed about the fruit of the Spirit. In verse 25, we are assured that we live according to or live by the Spirit and we are instructed to keep in step with the Spirit. The Christian life, friends, is the Spirit life. It is amazing that there is not only God with us in Christ, but God in us in the Spirit. We're commanded to be filled with the Spirit, not to grieve or resist or quench the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that the Christian life is far more than just obeying commands or even having right doctrinal stances? The Christian life is communion with God the Spirit. It is fellowship with God through Christ in the Holy Spirit. That is the essence of living the Christian life. It is by the Spirit that we came into the Christian life and it is by the Spirit that we continue in the Christian life. It is by the Spirit that we please the Father in every respect. It is by the Spirit that Christ the Son is formed within us. It is a a blessing beyond comparison to possess and be possessed by the Spirit of God Himself. I just uh, have marveled at that this week. And my earnest prayer is that you and I would come to know more of what it is to walk by the Spirit. In verse 16, where we'll begin, we have an admonition with an accompanying assurance. The admonition is simple. Walk by the Spirit. Two words in Greek. Walk by the Spirit. What does it mean to walk? Well, sometimes in the Bible it just literally means to put one foot in front of the other and walk. But of course, many times it refers to our manner of life. And in particular, I think the connotation is pointing to our step-by-step, day-by-day, moment-by-moment, decision-by-decision kind of life. Walk. By the Spirit. Let your walk, let your lifestyle, let your step-by-step thinking and decision-making and actions be led by the Holy Spirit. Walk. The word used here, the Greek word, is a form of the Greek word peripatetic. There was in Athens or in Greece, before Paul, was was well-known, a school of philosophy founded by Aristotle called the Peripatetic School. And it was called that because it was said that he would teach while walking from place to place with his students. And of course, there's a kind of education that you can get by sitting in a classroom and absorbing information. That's tremendously helpful. But there's another kind of education that is more like what we would uh, refer to as an internship or an apprenticeship, 
where you're getting information, but you're putting that information into practice right away, and you're watching, and you're responding, and you're copying, and you're, you're uh, following the example of the mentor, the, the uh, master, or whatever it is. Jesus, of course, used this very style of teaching to raise up his apostles, his disciples. They walked from place to place, and they emulated their master. He went out and healed and sent them out to heal. He preached and sent them out to preach and so forth. They just walked and talked and learned with him. And I tell you, this kind of learning, learning to walk by the Spirit, that kind of learning, I'm just going to tell you, you can't get from a sermon. You can't get from an adult Bible study class. You cannot get it from a book. Now, it's not to diminish in any way the importance of any of those things. Absolutely, we must think God's thoughts after Him if we're ever going to walk God's paths after Him. But this is the kind of school that you have to be in every day of your life, learning what it is to walk in emulation of God's Spirit, according to the promptings, according to the leadings, according to the biblical direction of God's Spirit every moment, every hour, every decision, every word. This is the kind of learning that is something beyond even being a full-time theologian. That's not the same as learning to walk by the Spirit. Martin Luther said, anyone who would know well this art of walking by the Spirit would deserve to be called a theologian. I and others like me hardly know the basics of this art, and yet we are studious pupils in the school where this art is being taught. That's what we want to be. That's where we want to be. Earnest pupils in the school of the Spirit. Walking according to His leading, His teaching, His guidance, His direction, His prompting. This is what the Puritans called experimental or experiential religion. Not not meaning that you let your experience drive your theology, but rather that you pray earnestly until your theology is actually lived out in your experience. The Puritan William Ames said that theology is the doctrine of living to God. Reformed theology is not just to fill our heads, friends. It is to be lived out in Reformed piety. There was a reason the Puritans are so well-loved by so many of us, and that is because they combined a robust doctrine with a robust piety, a life of holiness and godliness and devotion to the Savior. Genuine affections, transformed desires, and true holiness of both heart and life. There is such a thing as cold, dead orthodoxy. Such is not walking by the Spirit. It is living and practical and experiential. It is learned in the course of life. 
and over a lifetime to walk in step with the Spirit. And maybe that's why it's a little bit hard to give a succinct definition of what it means. And I have been somewhat troubled by this, and I've had people come to me and say, what, t- tell me, what it, what, what's the real secret? What, what does it really mean to walk by the Spirit? I mean, I want to get it. And, and I, I get it, it's hard to get. Uh, it's hard to define in just so many words I'm going to try to enlarge on it over the next couple of weeks. For now, I will attempt to give you as succinct a definition as I can. But the real learning of it is going to take you a lot longer than it's going to take you to write it down. Walking by the Spirit is learning to live moment by moment under the control of the Spirit who by His Word works out the life of Christ in those who are united to Him by faith. And that means that there is, first of all, an intellectual component to walking by the Spirit that is learning more of His Word. It's the Spirit's Word, right? this This is inspired of the Spirit. So walking by the Spirit means learning more of His Word, furnishing your mind as a rich dwelling place for the Spirit of God in you through study, through meditation, and memorization of the Word of God. There's also a perceptual component to walking by the Spirit. That is, a development of a moment-by-moment sensitivity to God the Holy Spirit to His promptings that are in line with His revealed Word. And a life of nearly ceaseless prayer in the Spirit. There is also a volitional component. Yielding, yielding, learning to just give in to the Spirit's will, to His control. And there is a faith component because all of this looks to Christ by faith for His imputed and His experiential righteousness. The Spirit-filled life is, in fact, the very life of Jesus Christ lived out in me. As Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. There is a a faith component. This is the command. Walk by the Spirit. And there is with that command an accompanying assurance. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the what of the flesh you will not gratify the desires of the flesh what a blessing walk by the spirit and you will not covet walk by the spirit and you will not speak angry words walk by the spirit and you will not be lazy walk by the spirit and you will not dishonor your parents you will not walk by the spirit and you will not pray empty prayers 
You will not love yourself most. You will not lust or steal or lie. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit and you will not engage in, as verse 19 says, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, or things like these. You just plain will not. On the contrary, love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, these will characterize your life. All of this, all of this from doing one thing, walk by the Spirit. The Christian life is not complicated. It's not simple. Don't confuse those two things. It is not simple It is not easy, I should say. It's not easy, but it's also not complicated. It is simply dying and letting the Holy Spirit bring to life Christ in us. Letting Him take control. Learning to be out of control and letting Him be in control. And then, learning to do that more frequently until at last it's every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every year, for all eternity to come. And here is, in verse 17, here is the reason that you cannot and will not gratify the desires of the flesh if you're walking by the Spirit. Here's the reason. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. The flesh, that is the old you, if you are a Christian, has innate desires. And the spiritual you, the Spirit of God controlling you, has opposite desires. And just like you can't, get in your car and go east and west at the same time. You cannot walk by the Spirit and fulfill fleshly desires. They are opposed to one another. They're going in absolute opposite directions. They are mutually exclusive. But this then puts the Christian in a strange position. Because on the one hand, Romans chapter 8, for example, says that those who are, we read it earlier, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So on the one hand, if you belong to Christ, Paul says, you're not in the flesh. Right? But on the other hand, he says in Galatians 2.20, he refers to the life I now live in the flesh. So, on the one hand, we are, we have already died with Christ and have been raised to the new life of the new creation. We're already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. On the other hand, 
we are not yet fully experiencing that glorified, perfected state. And sadly, we all know that too well by experience. Paul puts it this way in verse 17, the end of the verse, or the middle of the verse. He speaks, speaking of the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. He says they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So if verse 16 is a taste of glory, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Then verse 17 is a dose of reality, as it is far too often the case for us in the present. The Christian life then is on the one hand an increasing experience of glory, that glory that is to come for us, an increasing experience of that that we sometimes call sanctification, while on the other hand, it is always constrained by the present reality of the flesh. Which um, has at least this implication that we should not lose heart when we fall into sin as if there's no way I could be a Christian. Um, I tried to be a Christian, and I just, I couldn't. Well, the truth is that Christians, the best of Christians, still struggle with the flesh. So, don't give up. Stay in the fight as a Christian. Yield to the Spirit. Do battle against the flesh. Now, in this ongoing battle of spirit against flesh, I want to ask you, who are you? Who am I? Who am I? Because verse 17, uh, he says that this internal battle, quote, keeps you from doing the things you want to do. Who is this you? Is this the fleshly you? Not able to do what it desires? Or the spiritual you? Who are you? And maybe there have been times when the flesh has seemed so strong, you have been tempted to think, yeah, that's me. That's who I am. That's who I'm gonna, that's who I'm always going to be. Don't you believe it, friend? Christian, that is a lie from the devil. I want you to think about Romans 7. We read it earlier. In fact, maybe turn there. We'll look at it on the screen as well. Romans 7. Let me just remind you of the testimony of the Apostle Paul himself in his candid moment here in Romans 7, beginning of verse 15. He says, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. This is almost exactly what he says in Galatians, right? That this internal battle, quote, keeps you from doing the things you want to do. He says, 
I do the not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Now, here's the logic of that as Paul extrapolates it out. He's saying, okay, well, that means something then. Verse 16, he says, now, if I do what I do not want to do, then I find that I'm in agreement with the law, that the law is good. And so my conclusion is, now it's no longer, what? It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I want you to follow what I think is the logic here. His, Paul is saying his deepest want, his deepest desire is to do God's will as it is revealed in his law. And if that's the case, then it cannot be the real Paul or the real I who does the things that he doesn't want to do. There must be some kind of other, almost as it were, foreign entity. An entity within me with whom I do not fully identify and yet is is me in a sense that's doing these things that are in contradiction to what I most deeply want to do. You see what he's getting at? He, he, this is his conclusion. This is his logic based on the, the, the desires that he has and the way that that's being worked out in his life. Verse 18, he goes on, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So, so... If there is some good in me, a desire to please God, then I am not to be equated with the flesh. Because the flesh has nothing good in it at all. But of course, here's the struggle. Look at the end of verse 18. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Once again, now he's going to draw this logical conclusion. Verse 20, now if I, if I do what I do not want, then it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And then I think he makes it emphatic down in verse 25. Let's drop down a couple verses. So then, now look what he says here. So then, I think a lot, a, lot of, a lot of translations will have it something like this. I myself, in Greek it's actually a triply emphatic um, way of saying it. I, I, I will, I serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. In other words, what's going on in this passage? Paul is, on the one hand, acknowledging, okay? He's acknowledging the continual struggle that we all know so well of flesh versus spirit, but he identifies himself with the spirit, with those desires to do the will of God. He says, that's the real me. That's who I actually am. And friends, let me tell you, that 
is exactly what you are going to consciously have to do to say in your heart, that is me. That desire to please God, to do His will, to be conformed to the image of Christ, that is the real me. That desire to have a holy life, that's who I am. And I will continue to pray for the experience of that until the day I die. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith acknowledges that there is within the Christian, quote, a continual and irreconcilable war with the desires of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. But, it goes on to say, in this war, the remaining corruption may greatly prevail for a time Yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part overcomes. So the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That is true. We have to tell ourselves that every day. That's me. That's who I am. Oh Lord, let it be so. If any of you lacks wisdom, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom to endure temptations, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. Why, amen. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Brothers and sisters, stop doubting and start believing. Believing that you can, by the Spirit, that you will grow in grace, in the experience of Holiness in the experience of the life of Jesus Christ Himself as you learn to walk moment by moment more consistently by the Spirit. But though in this life the flesh keeps us from fully realizing our spiritual desires, we are nevertheless justified before God. Amen? In spite of the fact that we have not yet fully obtained that perfection for which we strive, we are counted perfect in the sight of God. Because Christ is our righteousness, and that righteousness is the same Yesterday, today, and forever. Christ bore the yoke of the law on our behalf. So verse 18, back in our text in Galatians chapter 5, verse 18, we'll end here. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Luther said that a Christian is simultaneously righteous and a sinner not yet perfected, still struggling with the flesh, and yet righteous 
in the sight of God. And at the end of the day, our place with God will not be merited even by our Christian obedience, but rather by Jesus Christ alone. Now, I just want to make sure that that's really true of me and true for you. Because it's easy to say, I have faith, right? How would you know if you are not under the law? Take a look at the verse. Take a look at the Bible. Who is it that's not under the law? Those who are what? Led by the Spirit. In other words, not just everyone who says he has faith is out from under the condemnation of God. Our holiness is not perfect. We do not do what we want. But our spirit-filled life is evidence that we are, in fact, united with Christ and delivered from the curse of the law. Or to say it in the words of the writer of Hebrews, and I just love how this is put so succinctly and so perfectly and so beautifully. Hebrews 10.14 By a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time who? Those of us who are being sanctified. This last part of the verse identifies the people. The first part of the verse tells them that their level of sanctification is not the final determination of their standing before God in eternity. You've got to hold on to both. Somebody who names the name of Christ says, well, I'm okay because Christ died for my sin and then goes on and doesn't live any kind of spirit-filled life. That verse doesn't apply to him. But for those who are walking, albeit imperfectly, progressively, prayerfully, earnestly desiring to know more of what it means to walk by the Spirit, he says, not under the law. You're free. Not free to sin, but free to live. Free to live a righteous spirit controlled life. That's real life. That's living. Maybe you've known some of that. The freedom and the joy of walking for an hour or half a day in the control of the Holy Spirit or a day or a couple of days or more or less for a week. What is it like? It's just freedom. It's joy. It's... uh, It's the freedom of watching Christ live out a life of holiness in and through us. Christian, Christian, there is a war on, right? But I want to remind you that greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. Don't lose heart. Don't give up hope. There is a great, almighty power within us, right? This is not a fair fight. Greater is He that is in you. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires 
of the flesh. So get on your knees and cry out to God, the Holy Spirit, oh God, fill me. Fill me. Control me. Control me like wine controls a drunkard. Just fill me with your Spirit's thinking and your Spirit's desires, your Spirit's actions. Fill me with the person of Christ. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Ask, brothers. Seek and knock. Keep on asking and seeking until the Lord gives. Stay in that peripatetic school of the Spirit. Learning to walk step by step, moment by moment, under His guidance and direction. Amen. Father, please let Your Word do its work, not only now in this moment, but in the course of our lives this week. We pray earnestly. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. With heads bowed, with our eyes closed for a moment, let's continue to contemplate this text and pray, pray most earnestly that you may come to know more of the experience of it this week.